0: I'm gonna ask Deborah Blake to come up here. Deborah Blake's favorite verse is, or her, one of her life verses, I should say, is Isaiah 65:24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear.
1: Tell us about this verse. Well, um It's special to me because, as everybody know, I newly retired, and um, a process that you go through is reflecting on life. And um, in doing that, I see just all the many blessings that God did in my life, Um, the good and the bad. I see where before I even had that thought or even knew, there was just so many doors opened up in my life that are just unbelievable, and it started at a time when uh, my life was very troubled, and um, I reached out to my sister and my brother-in-law Lamont, and they opened their home to me. I came initially to California on a vacation, um, and it ended up in me staying here. Not, I had not planned, you know. I hear a lot of people say how, you know, they planned out their life and they did this and that, but I'm one of those people that did not do that. I am somebody that was led by God. He opened doors in my life that I was not aware of. Um, there was so much love poured out to me um, from various individuals, including this church, Um, that when I look back, I just know it was God. I just know because I had no vision of it. Mm -hmm. You know, when Martina left home, I was what we referred to as a toddler. So I didn't really know her. I knew of her, that she was first born, but we really didn't have that sister relationship other than God moving me to contact her and Lamon as well. I know I hear stories about when I was younger and him playing in my ears and such, but I didn't really know them. And for them to open their doors and not know me either, because I was in Wisconsin and they were out here, but just that love that they opened their doors and the way I saw God work through them and be, you know, receptive to what he was leading them and me to do you know Um, professors that I had in my life uh, people that didn't even know me and they did things on my behalf that I was unaware of but that brought blessings to me and my daughters it's just there's so much you know this hour that we get on Sunday morning (laughs) that is not enough to testify to what God has Mm -hmm. done for me and I never even thought or prayed on it Mm -hmm. but Like Psalm 139 also is dear to me, verse 4, where it talks about he knew before I was ever even conceived his plans for my life. And for me to be here today to be able to say and reflect back on how much love and blessing that he's poured out Mm -hmm. into my life. I'm just so thankful, Mm -hmm. so very thankful.
0: If you if you want to hear a little bit more, talk to De- Deborah. She was you actually took a month off of work in Wisconsin to come here, and thinking you were going to go back, and then your life totally changed. Doors opened, things happened, the, you know that really were for good in your life. A direct way of seeing God. That was in your 20s, and then ever since. So, she has she has an amazing amazing story
1: that I didn't see it and you won't always see it but if you know right from wrong and you know the Lord follow the right path Mm -hmm. just just follow it
0: Mm -hmm. that's good that's a good word thank you Well, we are in a sermon series entitled, My Life of Verse, and today's verse does come from the prophet Isaiah, and as always with the prophets, the bad news comes before the good news. So we got to dwell a little bit in the bad news before we can hear that word for the good news that it really, really is. So in Isaiah 65, and this is the Lord speaking, verse 1, I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask and to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call my name. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. God has turned towards his people, waiting, willing, holding his hands, his outstretched arms to help them, saying, I am right here, the Holy One, ready, ready to bless his people. Is this how we picture God, with his arms outstretched to us in love? And yet, inexplicably, shockingly, disgustingly, God's people turn their backs on God, and they purposefully turn away from his love and care. Have you seen those videos of little toddlers who are put on one side of the room and the family on the other side with their arms outstretched to see which one the toddler will pick? Okay, we have one somewhere. Oh, there we are. Mom or dad? Oh. The toddler's running, running into their arms. Whoop, swerved at the last minute. Okay, so Isaiah is describing a scenario where the loving, merciful, healing God is holding out his arms and the child deliberately turns in the opposite Direction and runs directly to the venomous viper out there instead. Now, why would a child turn away from the parent who loves them? Why would a child do that? Exploration, yes. What's out there? What else? Rebellion, what else? Just to see, curiosity. curiosity, candy, I heard the candy one, yeah, immaturity, testing their love, ignorance, yeah, because you want to eat candy in the morning, I thought of that one, because parents have too many rules, because you want to be the boss of yourself and you want to do things your own way, because you want to have fun, because you like running wild, because your parents are so demanding. Why would we ever turn away from God? For those reasons and many, many more. Verse 2, I held out my hands all day long. Look at God to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. And notice in this verse that the natural Godward direction of prayer, we direct our prayer this way to God as it should be. And in this verse, he's directing towards us. God stretches out down to us instead of the other way around to a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and offering incense on bricks. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, but some people think this refers to cultic sacrificial rites in sacred gardens to the goddess Asherah, involving something called a tree of life. It's a ritual thing. To people who sit inside of tombs and spend the night in secret places, this is a reference to divination, to consulting the dead, worship of the dead, or manipulation of the realm of the dead on behalf of the living. This is strictly forbidden in the Old Testament law. Who eat swine's flesh with broth of abominable things in their vessels. This is directly against the Old Testament dietary laws. To a people who say, keep to yourself, do not come near, near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day long. Have you ever been sitting around a campfire at night and your seat is directly in the line of the smoke? That's what God is saying. See, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay, I will indeed repay into their laps their iniquities and their ancestors' iniquities together, says the Lord, because they offered incense on the mountains and reviled me on the hills. I will measure into their laps full payment for their actions. Thus says the Lord, as the wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. There are two groups of people in this chapter in Isaiah, who those who have turned away from God and a cluster, a remnant, who is still faithful. They're called my servants in this passage. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, inheritors of my mountains. My chosen shall inherit it, and my servants shall settle there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. God was seeking the people. He's now rewarding the people who have sought him. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Those are two, we know those are names of two gods. We don't know too much about them. But it's clear that God's people were sacrificing to fortune and destiny. People want to know their fortune, want to know their destiny. I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called... You did not answer when I spoke. You did not listen, but you did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. My servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for anguish of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen to use as a curse and the Lord God will put you to death. The prophets can really lay it down, can't they? But to his servants he will give a different name. Then whoever invokes a blessing in the land shall bless by the God of faithfulness. Love that name of God, the God of faithfulness. It's not used very often in the Bible. And whoever takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of faithfulness because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my sight. The picture of God as the one holding out his arms to us, calling to us, speaking to us, it's heartbreaking when we see the response to God's love. His people walk away from love and blessing towards a certain hurt and judgment. And no wonder the punishment was severe for people who turn away from God, turn away from his abundant forgiveness and everlasting love. They turn away from the lifting of those heavy burdens of sin. They turn away from freedom and grace. There's a lot of bad news in this chapter. But in the prophets, there's always good news after the bad, and there is a remnant of faithful people of God, and now the focus shifts to those who remain faithful. Verse 17, for I am about to create a new heaven and a new earth. That thrill should just run up our arms and down the back of our necks. After the heaviness of judgment, God thunders forth, for I am about to create a new heaven and a new earth. Have you ever tried to create an imaginary world? Any artists, any creatives out there? Yep, some right there, one back there. Yep. Um, I I did, I think it was for a middle school project back in the day, it's for a writing prompt and uh, we were all supposed to create a new world and so what would I want in this new world to have or not to have and I remember that I decided that all water fountains would squirt soda instead of water, that was my brilliant idea. I was so pleased with myself there. And then uh, I knew that I didn't want any bad guys in my world, and that's about when I gave up. That's as creative as I could get to reconfigure the world. I really struggled to imagine a world that was different than the world we have. What I didn't know is that I, as a middle schooler, was working on a God-sized problem, and it was totally unfair of that teacher to expect me to tackle a problem that only God can fix. Isaiah 65 takes us right back to the first three chapters of Genesis. God created a magnificent, harmonious, very good world, and then guess who messed up paradise? And when we mess up, we do a bang-up job of messing it up. And how is God gonna fix this mess? Just think about, the, think about the newspaper headlines, think about relationships, think about your own family. How is God going to fix up the mess? One commentator says of Genesis 3, In ruptured existence after disobedience, I love that, ruptured existence between Adam and Eve and God, God must call to humans who are, where are they? Hiding. God holds out his arm in the Garden of Eden. And as a result of our sin, now, we must be the ones to call out to God. And we are fraught with sin and anguish and avoidance and rebellion. But in the new heaven and earth, all that is confused and reeked in divine human exchange is gone. That aspect of human divine communication, which was disrupted by the corrupt human will and heart, that will be addressed by God, and the consequences will be a new creation. God will create a new world exponentially different, exponentially better than this one, and the prophet struggles to describe it. Verse 17, for I am about to create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I am about to create a Jerusalem as a joy and a people as a delight. What do we know about Jerusalem now? It's a place of tension and war and and fear and terrorism, that whole Middle East area, right? So think of the utter transformation needing here. The problem with people is that they are people and no matter where you go, there are the same type of people that you were trying to get away with. And in fact, no matter where you go, you take yourself there too. And you're part of the problem. Imagine a new earth where all people are a delight. Okay, we know right there that it's going to take a mighty work of salvation from God to have a city of joy and its people a delight. I God says, verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. And look, wherever God is rejoicing and delighting, I want to be right there in the middle of it, because that's going to be a party, right there. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it, or the cry of distress. Now, what does that verse sound like? The new Jerusalem, no more shall the sound of weeping. Sounds like revelation. Revelation took from Isaiah this idea. So this book in the middle of the Bible has links back to Genesis and all the way over to Revelation. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime for one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered a curse. In the time when this is written, they figure that, well, infant mortality was high and one-third of all babies born died before their sixth birthday. Life expectancy at birth was 33 years old. In the new earth, a major source of grief is removed. And imagine reaching a hundred years old, but feeling like a youth. Not having the ravages of those years wreak on your body, but feeling young at a hundred years old. Ooh, centenarians who feel like youth! Praise the Lord. The ravages of aging. Ooh. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their, eat their fruit. We love ourselves some housing security built into the new heaven and the new earth. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Those are specific reversals of covenant curses. Specific reversals. Throughout the book of Isaiah, <clears throat> as he's prophesied about the future, we get to glimpse this new thing that God is bringing about. And we see that it involves, we haven't read all of the passages, but it involves ecological transformation. It involves the elimination of violence and oppression. The new heaven and the new earth will involve a removal of physical disabilities. It involves justice, peace, and security. It involves harmony with all of creation, harmony with the animal world. And now, in the flowering and the blossoming of this new society, a different Quality and quantity of life. Now we come to our verse. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. So we come full circle to a God who is stretching out his hands to the beginning verses of this chapter. A God who is so attuned to our needs that before we even know we have them, God already knows. And God has already planned. A God who sees a way out when we can't see our way clear. A God who knows that the plans he has for us are plans for good. And he knows already exactly how he is going to bless us. Now, often in prayer, we just launch immediately into what we need. What's like the panic button? Like, oh, this is a big need in my life. Let me pray about this, right? What's worrying us? These are at the top of our head. They're already at the top of God's agenda. He has already taken care of them, and they've just gone down the list because that is already taken care of. God already knows how he's going to bless us before we ask. Part of gift giving, the good part, one good part of gift giving is the anticipation of how that person is going to receive that gift. If you have a good gift, part of it is thinking in the days before you give that gift, how that person is going to love receiving that gift. So imagine the twinkle in God's eye and the curve of the smile as he has already planned the next gift that he is going to give each and every one of us. And he's thinking, how are they gonna receive it? The complete circle of this chapter, beginning and ending with God reaching out to us. Well, then someone added a PS on it, verse 25. An extra, it just had to be in there. It was the cherry on top of the whipped cream of the Sunday. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And then that's a peek back again to Genesis 3 and that account of the serpent and that curse of the serpent. Can we see it? What God is up to is nothing less than making a new heaven and a new earth. Not patching up the old one, not recycling the old one, but creating something brand new. And don't we get tired of dragging the old around? When we sin long enough, we get tired of our sin. We're trapped by our sins. We get tired by our limitations and by our frustrations. And we surely are tired of the more things change, the more they... are Tired of that. We're tired of seeing the footprint of sin trampling mud all over every aspect of creation. One of the old church fathers, Irenaeus, called God's new creation, A recapitulation was his word for it, but God's new creation is an act of God in Christ, whereby the entire story of God's dealings with the chosen people is reclaimed chapter by chapter from the very beginning right through to the end. It's never enough for God to comfort one person apart from the total transformation of the whole created order. And now, post-resurrection, post-crucifixion, we see that this vision of Isaiah entails the actual project that God has undertaken through the obedience of his Son. That Isaiah's vision is a description of what God is accomplishing through Jesus Christ. I guess the most famous image of God reaching out his arms comes from the statue outside of Rio de Janeiro. There it is. Very famous statue. Cristo Redentor, Christ the Redeemer. Jesus stands above the teeming city with his arms outstretched. Here are his hands. Look at his hands. What does the statue say to you? What? Two Two arms, no waiting. That's good. That's good. You know, I, he's he's this way. I wondered whether that was a reference also to the cross. You know? Protection and come to me. Come to me. Yeah. Um, did Isaiah imagine when he said, My arms are, when the Lord says, My arms are outstretched, did he imagine it like this? There are many statues with, with uh, Jesus, his arms outstretched. There's one, a bigger one, in Bolivia. This one is called the Christ of Peace, Cristo Concordia. Now look at his hands. His hands are a little bit like this. I think Brazil is more like this. Um, Here's a statue of Jesus in Colombia, next one, called Cristo Rey, Christ the King. Arms outstretched. There's one in Indonesia. There's that one, that's huge. And look, his, his hands are this way. There's one, actually there's several, at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea called Christ of the Abyss. People who are going down into the abyss are gonna need Christ, right? I think there's about five of those different places. But back to the one in Rio, I looked at this picture. Now look at those, that crowd of people at the foot of Jesus. Most of them are turned towards him, but some have turned away. Now I know they are tourists visiting a statue, but this is symbolic for me of our passage. Jesus is stretching his arms out today and he says, here I am, here I am. And people do turn away from him. But right now, today, we can turn our face towards God. We can turn to him whose arms are outstretched to us. We can hear God saying, before you call, call, I will answer. While you are yet speaking, I will hear. God is not far from you. He knows you intimately from the inside. He knows every need of yours before you know it. And he is already answering before you have properly formed the words. He already has good laid out ahead of you that you don't yet know about. So run. Don't walk, run and jump into the arms of God. Let's bow our heads. Precious God, let our hearts be very attuned to your call. And let us hear you more clearly than the things of this world that call to us, that entice us, that delight us, that may cause us to turn our backs against you, tune our ears to your voice. And thank you, precious God, for providing for us and for one day providing a new heaven and a new earth. In your name we pray, amen.